Welcome to Water for Fighting, where we discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brad Cyphers. This week's discussion is brought to you by Sea and Shoreline and Resource Environmental Solutions. Sea and Shoreline is a Florida-based aquatic restoration firm that's on a mission to restore Florida's water bodies and to protect our coastline communities against severe storms. You can check out their projects at seaandshoreline.com. And of course, Res. Res is the national leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, offering nature-based solutions with guaranteed performance through innovative delivery options. Discover more about their work and commitment to Florida and its environmental challenges by visiting www.res.us. I'm very happy to introduce this week's guest, Matt Posner. I've described this podcast as being about the past, present, and future of water and the environment in Florida. And Matt most certainly represents well the latter of those two characteristics. Matt serves as the executive director of the Pensacola and Perdido Bay Estuary Program, an agency established to coordinate, restore, and research at a watershed scale. He's one of the most prolific young environmental professionals in the state, and I'm so glad to be here in Pensacola with him today. Matt, thanks for being with me on Water for Fighting. So you're a Pensacola native. Is your family native to the area as well? Actually, no. So my parents met here in Pensacola back in the mid-1980s. My mom's actually from a small town in Kansas, Seneca, Kansas. Uh, She moved down to Pensacola in the early 80s with a friend of hers. And then my dad is actually from the island of Curacao down in the lower Antilles, just off the coast of Venezuela. Uh, He had some family uh, up in Pensacola as well in the late 70s, early 80s. And so, like I think most people in Pensacola, met in the bar in in the 80s, and (laughs) the rest is history. And here I am. And what brought them, thinking of your mom first, how how does she and her friend get from Kansas and say, hey, Florida's where it's at? Yeah, so as the story goes, they had a family friend that uh, had been on a trip to Florida and said, you know, you need to get down to the coast. There's there's not a whole lot happening up here in Kansas. Go uh, have a good summer and enjoy a week or two. And then another family friend said, oh, well, you know, you don't need to look at Miami or Tampa. Go to, go to the Gulf Coast. Go to Northwest Florida. Go check out Pensacola. We just went there. It was fantastic. And so... They made the uh, road trip down from Kansas to Florida. And what was interesting is, if you know anything about the Pensacola area, they went to the Sound side, Santa Rosa Sound, and they thought that that was the Gulf of Mexico. It was the most water that they've ever seen. And they were just enamored by it. And it wasn't until they moved back a couple months later that they actually discovered the Gulf of Mexico on the other oh, side wow. of the beach. So it, it was really interesting, and I think it really just highlights the, the reason so many people move to this area is, is the connection to their natural resources. Yeah. Was she in school at all the time? How old would she have been at that time? That's a great question. Probably, probably mid twenties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And Curacao, that is not close as well to Florida. <laughs> yeah. Um, how'd that happen? Yeah. A few, few thousand miles south of here. My dad initially went to moved to the U.S., so kind of the thing to do back in in the 70s was if your family had the means, you would either send your kids to the U.S. or to Holland for further education. And so my dad ended up in Howie in the Hills, close to Daytona, and ultimately he went over to Emory Emory Riddle to get a degree in uh, airframe mechanics. That ended up not working out. He didn't pursue that, so he went to AMI, American Marine Institute, Mm -hmm. uh, down in Daytona for outboard engine repair, started a business down there. His brother 
and his wife were in the Pensacola Milton area already. So they ended up going into business together and they were in business together for I think about 10 or 12 years before they split the business and officially became Posse Marine in, in 94. Hmm. Uh, that by that point, my parents had gotten together and have been in business for 30, yeah, 30 years wow. uh, at this point. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah. Tell me what you were like as a kid. You, you, your parents are here, they, they got married, you're living happily, they're living happily in Pensacola, and then here comes Matt. What, what was that like as a kid? Trouble. No, uh, I, I don't. I don't think so. At least that's that's not how the stories go. You know, I was I was a fairly quiet kid. I'd say for the most part, I always had a great appreciation for you know going to the beach, mm. being kind of you know immersed in our natural resources. That's you know I, I grew up in a boating family. You know that yeah. that's that's what supported my family all all those years was the marine sales and service side of things. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get on the water as, as maybe everybody else because, as the story goes, the, the plumber always has the leaky pipes. Well, <laughs> the, the boat mechanic always has the, the boat that, that's broken down because he's working on somebody else's boat. All right. But what was interesting is, as a kid, I had a great fear of open water, and that comes from having not been a good swimmer mm. as a kid, and you know, eventually kind of overcame that fear you know, throughout teen years and and to where I am today, it's kind of funny to me now, like my whole life really revolves around, you know, protecting and restoring yeah. these waterways that I once had this great fear of. And that yeah. fear comes from uh, not having that connection and not having that respect for those, for those resources. How are you now in the water? I mean, do you, I mean, when you uh, open water, I mean, now we're not talking like, you know, in the bay, but when you get out there and you can barely see the shore, you can't see the shore. How, how are you, how are you these days? I'll say that I should probably hit the gym a little bit more often, or, or go for longer swims. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't have that, uh, I don't have that fear, you know, anymore. I feel a, a great immersion um, when I'm out there. Yeah. Well, you, I mean, you, you mentioned it a little bit your your interest in it. It's like, but in terms of interest in the natural sciences, obviously, I mean, we're going to talk a lot about what you do for a living. But when you were a kid, was that the kind of thing that interested you, or was it more the, that business side, the marine side of things? It probably wasn't until high school where um, my interest in science and environmental science specifically came. But there are several markers that I can think back to throughout you know, childhood and, and, and being in school. The first was Billy Johnson, my fifth grade, my fifth grade uh, teacher. Then it was Miss Hussey in eighth grade, and then ultimately Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Bauer um, in in high school here at Washington High School in Pensacola. You know those three teachers, those educators are, I think, what continued to bring out that interest mm. uh, over time. And really, where that came from was their great ability to get their students immersed in hands-on activities, get them out in the field. And so it was in high school, here, here again, here in Pensacola, Washington High School, that I was one of the uh, first students of the Marine Science Academy. And the Marine Science Academy was geared towards getting students out in the field to sample water quality, bring them in the lab to the, the school's wet right. lab, run the analysis, and then actually report out on that data in an annual symposium that, that the students put on. Wow. In addition to other research that was up to the student to, to pick, and mine at the time was focused on 
actually read Mangroves of all things. Hmm. It was really that experience that drove my interest to pursue environmental science for my undergrad and then ultimately into a career. You know, initially I was thinking, oh, I'll probably go into to business management, really having no idea what that actually meant or where I was going to land with that. <laughs> yeah. But actually being able to get an understanding of the issues that we see and then be able to come up with recommendations and implement those recommendations for how we can improve water quality was what drove me to, to go into uh, into this field. Well, that's funny, a little like a foreshadowing uh, for uh, for yeah. our future endeavors. Uh, talk about that time at, at West Florida. I mean, it sounds like it was a natural progression. Was there a relationship at the time between that program and the university? Yeah, so, so there actually was. We worked quite a bit with Marine Science Academy and University of West Florida. Uh, through their environmental science department and through their GIS staff to try to be able to really help propel uh, the data that was collected by the students into something that is more readily accessible to the public and and usable to resource managers as well. And and it's been great to see that program continue to evolve over the years and, and, and that relationship continues to this day. It was a time where I was going back and forth too. Do I, you know, go environmental science or do I go marine biology? Mm. And I asked a, a few close colleagues um, and, and mentors at the time, really, you know, what what would be the, the better way to go? And everybody stressed, you know, environmental science can be a very interdisciplinary field, and there can be many opportunities to, to go with it. That's not a, any shot against the marine biologists out there, but sure. it it would it would open up more doors um, than having maybe pursued the, the biology route. And that's what I ended up, um, that's what I ended up doing at, at West Florida. And so I guess that kind of speaks to, you know, the, the, what you were doing in, in high school and then moving into college, you're going to help me make sense of your resume because it's, you know, these overlapping things that aren't, that aren't typical of many, you were already working in the environmental field before you even graduated from UWF, right? Yeah, that's right. So that was kind of an interesting time where I was actually looking for an internship while I was probably midway through my undergrad program and reached out to Escambia County at the time and said, hey, you know, I'm interested in an internship. Around that same time, uh, we had the April 2014 flood event, which was very devastating locally. Uh, 24 inches of rain in 24 hours is the, the, the general message there. Mm. Com- completely overwhelmed much of our infrastructure. And as a result of that, Escambia County brought on uh, temporary staff to assist with enhanced water quality monitoring throughout. That was through a, a FEMA grant to really get a better understanding of the human health impacts associated with, again, this unprecedented amount of stormwater that we had entering our surface right. waters and you know impacts to recreation. And so I ended up really just well-timed to not go into an internship, but rather go into a temporary water quality technician position. Mm. And that got me engaged with the Skimby County Water Quality Division staff, who's a tremendous resource locally. And then ultimately, when that project sunsetted, you know, six months later, continued to pursue degree through UWF and ended up coming back to Escambia County to assist with some of their urban forestry work, uh, which was completely outside of my lane. Well, tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. urban forestry. I, I'm not positive I've heard that yeah. term before. Yeah, so at the time, the, the county had a, had a grant. I don't remember if it was through DEP or who it was, but 
really to, to complete a, a tree inventory of canopy within their parks and then eventually within the county right away. But our focus was initially on, on park resources. And the goal there was to, to get an understanding of the species, the condition of the urban forest of, of Escambia County and really to help build out a maintenance program so that way we have a, a great baseline and then if we know a, a tree is in good or fair or poor condition that there's a plan in place to be able to you know, remove that tree you know in the future and then really to be able to s- sustain that that canopy that's so necessary for our urban environment so it was a really unique um, experience i had no background in whatsoever <laughs> but you know, again, you have great mentors in life and in career specifically. And Jimmy Jarrett, the county arborist, um, took me under her wing and said, okay, this is what you need to do. Go out and do it. And then also, you know, one of the lessons there was you're getting paid to learn or you're getting paid to learn from your mistakes as well. And so <laughs> that kind of attitude allowed, you know, that flexibility mm-hmm. to, to really absorb so much information. Nice. All right. Let's pause for a moment to talk about my friends at Sea and Shoreline. As we in Florida wonder what the future holds when we face the storm season ahead, Sea and Shoreline is working to protect our coastline communities against severe storms by installing a variety of green and gray infrastructure solutions to make our cities and counties more resilient. These solutions include seagrass restoration, mangroves, oyster reefs, riprap, oyster breakwaters, and something called a WAD, which stands for Wave Attenuation Device. By installing their patented WADs, Sea and Shoreline can help protect our communities against sea level rise and storm surges by diffusing wave energy, stopping shoreline erosion, and even rebuilding shorelines through sand accretion. To learn more about how Sea and Shoreline can protect your community, visit seaandshoreline.com. All right, let's get back to the conversation. After that point, how long did that last? That was probably another year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so moving forward a little bit, was the next one when you were the restore coordinator? Yes. For and yes. I think that's when you and I met. Yeah, I think you're right. And tell me a little bit about that, because here's what I remember. I remember this young man who was full of energy, full of optimism, was working his tail off to to try to bring folks together to to accomplish something. Talk about talk about those days as a restore coordinator. Trying to stay out of trouble too, and <laughs> and, and and realize where he's stepping as well. But I, I appreciate that. I ended up moving into the restore coordinator role for Escambia County back in 2016 or so. And you know that was really at a time where the, Res- the Restore Act funding that I'm sure we'll talk about in, in greater detail. Well, let me, let me yeah. sorry to interrupt you. Sure. Uh, can you tell people what Restore is first? I, you know, I throw out these, you know, these terms as probably an acronym at that uh, that I don't remember. Can you, can you talk about what that is first a little yeah. bit? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the Restore Act really results from the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. So, of course, we had the, the great tragedy of the, the Deepwater Horizon spill in, in April of 2010 that impacted the entire Gulf Coast, both environmentally and economically as well. And as a result of that, there were substantial penalties that were mandated to go back to the, to the Gulf Coast. And in the case of the Restore Act, this is around 80% of those, those penalties are directed back for restoration activities in the five Gulf states and to the federal uh, agencies 
that are responsible for environmental resource management. And so Restore Act was, was passed by uh, Congress and then ultimately approved by President in, in 2012. By the time the uh, restoration settlement was worked out in 2016, we finally started to see really an emerging field of, of, of staff members from local, state, federal to NGOs building up across the Gulf Coast to be able to manage these funds and implement the projects that that come from them. And I was fortunate to be brought on with the Scambia County to to help fill that role initially as the Restore coordinator and then eventually move up into the Restore program manager role about a Mm. year later. Yeah, and you started, I think at that point, maybe it's fair to to describe it uh, thusly, as you started to develop a muscle memory for working with like these different stakeholders, different agencies, both governmental and non-governmental. Would you say that's pretty fair? Yeah. What I really picked up quickly is that to advance the needs of the region quicker, we had to work together with everybody. Hmm. And that's on the agency side, local, state, federal, that's working in partnership with the NGOs, you know, and down to to the interested citizen and, and, and business community as well. Everybody has a role. And it became very clear at the time that as the restore process and these restoration projects really started to unfold, that it was going to be necessary to integrate in with what Water Management District was doing, what the priorities were of DEP, and start to be able to build that relationship, that network of relationships, so that way we could see more funding come to the region to, to really address some large-scale legacy projects that have been needed for decades. Yeah. yeah. How long did that last at, as the manager? Yeah, so I, I was there ultimately four and, a half, four and a half, five years. Okay. And this is, this is where I start to, you know, I'm going through your resume, and, and we talked a little bit beforehand as well. Uh, we're going to help me unwind this a little bit, because somewhere in the middle there, you finish a grad degree from the University of South Florida, of all places, not in Pensacola. That's right. Um, and then you become the interim director of the estuary program. That's right. Yeah. Talk me through a little bit of that timeline, just to kind of level set. And then I want you to talk, if you don't mind, a little bit about, because you were, you were involved at the very infancy of the creation of the estuary program over here and so can you kind of piece a little bit of that like I know that the the degree is mixed in there but I don't want to breeze by it without you talking about the why sure uh, but but tell me a little bit about that right so it was 2016 back when I was restore coordinator then moving into restore program manager with the county that there was a discussion being had at the time of standing up a new estuary program for the region I had no idea what this was at the time, but there was a lot of work going on and a lot of people that had great foresight at the time when it became known what the penalties associated with the Deepwater Horizon spill were going to be. And there were folks from the local government level, and I remember this distinctly, former commissioner and then eventually mayor of Pensacola, Grover Robinson, with Daryl Boudreau, who worked with the Nature Conservancy and then Water Management District, and Dr. Dick Snyder, who worked with the University of West Florida, and there are many others, but those three stick out in my mind that said, we have an opportunity to leave a legacy for this community, for these once-in-a-generation resources, and we need to establish a locally driven science-based organization that can help guide where these resources go and ensure that we don't have the same issue 
you know, 15, 20 years from, from now. Yeah. But we actually see the tangible improvements, whether it's water quality, oyster habitat, seagrass, community resilience, uh, materialize. And so it was modeled, though, after EPA's National Estuary Program that's been around for 30 years, 28 programs across the country. Closest to us is Mobile Bay. There's four in Florida. And we work very extensively now with those organizations. But it was realizing the success that these 28 programs have had across the country for for 30 years that everybody around here said, well, this is a great model. Let's do that. Mm -hmm. And it took a lot of convincing, I'd say, of state leadership at the time, of EPA representatives, to be able to commit the resources necessary to establish such a program. And we were fortunate locally to have a a group that had been around for nearly 30 years, and it was known as the Bay Area Resource Council, or the BARC. The BARC really served as an ad hoc group to to try to coordinate as best as possible restoration opportunities, monitoring, um, education, and outreach. And, you know, it had its ebbs and flows like any organization like that. It had high peaks in, in the early 2000s, but it had fairly deep, deep lows after the recession, you know, mm-hmm. much like many environmental organizations. And it never had the dedicated staff nor financial resources that was necessary to be able to to make the, the transformational need that was necessary. But what it already had was a great network of collaborators. And so that group in, in 2016 and then 2017 got together. And when EPA put out a funding opportunity in, in 2017, the BARC um, Technical Advisory Committee served as the authors of the proposal to establish the Pensacola and Prito Bay's estuary program. Mm. We were fortunate that our proposal ultimately was accepted. And you know, keep in mind at this time, I was low man on the totem <laughs> pole. I, I was just happy to be part of the team and happy to be a spoke in the wheel and uh, you know assist where, where I could yeah. and trying to help envision this great opportunity for the community moving forward. So ultimately, we're successful. Like many things, it takes a year to get the paperwork in place to, right. you know, to have a grant agreement. But it was in 2018 where we transitioned the then bark into the SRA program and expanded that membership. So what I failed to mention before is that the bark was made up of five local jurisdictions. We ended up expanding that to eight jurisdictions, excuse me, nine jurisdictions, mm-hmm. from Baldwin County and City of Orange Beach, Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, in the west, to Okaloosa County in the east, and all the municipalities in between, to have a great framework to be able to, to build, you know, to build out this, this comprehensive management plan. And so it was necessary for, for me to, to say that to get back to your original point, which mm-hmm. was as that program started to form, part of the goal was to establish and hire dedicated staff and then eventually developed this this blueprint for restoration and this comprehensive conservation and management plan, the CCMP. I was kind of dubbed as the interim staff to help shepherd this program along and, and, and get it off the ground. Which and had its doubts. I was one of uh, one of those early doubters. For me, it was you, you, you managed to get some money to start up thanks to those local partners that you had. And I think you may have gotten a small grant, a one-time grant elsewhere. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, what happens after year three? And I'm talking less to you, more to Daryl Boudreaux at the time, and even Paul Thorpe. And Daryl's like, trust me, it's going to be, it's going to be fine. Tell me how, tell me how it became fine it, at that point, because you're talking about transitioning from, hey, we invented a thing, but how do you, how do you make, how do you put wheels on it to, to run to, to this point? 
I have no idea. I haven't, I haven't read the <laughs> book yet. No, I mean, I honestly think about that quite a bit because I, I shared those feelings as you did. Like, well, is this going to work? You know, how, how will this work? And eventually when I, you know, came in as, as interim director and then eventually was, was hired in as, as full-time director, the, the message generally was, one, this has to work. Mm-hmm. There, there is no ability for failure here because there's a lot of eyes at the state level, whether that's Water Management District, DEB, oh, yeah. or whether that's, uh, you know, up to, to EPA and, and Congress that if we want additional investments to come to this region, we have to make this work. And that started one with a great network of, of partners who really did believe in this program. And you know, using that management conference model, and, and the management conference simply is that dining room table, basically, where everybody has a seat, whether you're some high up in a federal agency or whether you're the small uh, uh, NGO group boots on the ground. Everybody has uh, a seat to, to give direction for where this program goes and where we put resources forward and what our focus areas are going to be. And then it was really bringing in a solid team. And, you know, we're so fortunate, you know, we're a staff of six, so we're not, we're not huge by any means, but, but we were able to bring in a great diverse staff that really was able to complement one another well internally, but then just be able to dive into those those relationships and form those relationships right out of the gate. And you also have to remember, like, basically the program and the team was built out right when COVID, you know, became an issue. Right. And so it was our senior scientists and our outreach coordinator that started in March 2020 and July 2020, respectively. Wow. And... You're talking about a, 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 a partnership-based organization. All of a sudden, you can't meet with people <laughs> in person when you know the world kind of stops for some period of time until we figure out what's going on. And so we pivoted. We had to pivot you know, immediately to go to virtual platforms and figure out how to make this work. One, because we had a grant through EPA and Restore Council that says yeah. you are going to do this. Yeah. And two, knowing that it's a need. You know, It's a need for the region. And so... We, we had great uh, participation and feedback being able to build out this plan, this model for the Pensacola and Prudhoe Bay uh, watersheds that ultimately took you know, about, about two years. And I think the two connecting points there to make are you have to find that balance in the science and you know, the, the community values. And that's what we've strived to do as, as the programs matured and as we've gotten our, our guiding blueprint developed for us. And one of the first things that we did was to reach out to the to the community, and you know, do a survey and say, what do you what do you value most about living here? And through and through, what we heard is it's the connection to our natural resources. It's having fishable and swimmable waters for all. It is the aesthetic beauty that Pensacola or Purdue Bay or East Bay or wherever you fancy to to enjoy the sunset and you know we couple that with with what the science says and you know sometimes science says what people don't necessarily want to hear right and it's being able to take the emotion out of these things but also respecting the emotion people have for the the community that they either grew up in or that they've adopted to make their home 
and I, I think that's what's really putting this on a great direction for success. What was your strategy for kind of getting to that point? Your your local governments were already convinced about the, the value here, obviously. DEP came around, I came around, and others did, and we're re- and ready to see you succeed. How did you get around that corner with some folks who, who were maybe closer to home that had their doubts? Yeah, I think you just have to grind it out. I yeah. mean, it, honestly, that's what it takes is there's always going to be folks that doubt the long-term success of a, of a program, of a project, of a, of a partnership. But what we've been able to do is, you know, everything that we said we were going to do, we've, we've been able to do it mm-hmm. or we're on course to be able to do it. And it's also been the continued buy-in that we've had from those other, you know, local champions, whether it's somebody like Daryl Boudreaux or whether it's you when you were at Water Management District or whether it's Grover while he was mayor, the more people start to hear good things about a program succeeding, the more that they want to jump in on it. Because, oh, well, if this local government over here is is having a great partnership with them and and getting additional resources, well, then I'd like my organization to be a partner with them too and and also help expand my septic sewer priorities or or stormwater priorities. And so it's, it's really been that demonstration of success. And you know, we, we have so much to owe to the state legislature. Mm-hmm. You know, like you mentioned before, we had upfront funding in the amount of $2 million from EPA. On the one hand, $2 million is a lot of money. On the other hand, when you're running an organization, it's not a ton of money right. <laughs> over a four or five year period. And we were fortunate to build up a relationship with State Representative Alex Andrade and State Senator Doug Broxson that believed in the program. They, they believed in the long-term mission of the program. They helped secure a state appropriation for us back in, in 2020, you know, again, a time where right. there's a lot of uncertainty. And we were able to develop a community grant program. We were able to do some other data gap filling for longer-term oyster restoration. We were able to demonstrate that success with the funds that have had been entrusted to us by way of DEP. And, you know, now we're four appropriations in, fortunately, and we, ho- we hope that will continue. But yeah. through that, we're also able to build in that support from the local governments. We're able to take that back to NOAA or EPA and get you know, additional investments for the region from them. Yeah. And now it has a snowballing effect that doesn't seem to be stopping. At yeah, least. and how I would I would say is like su- success, you know, breeds success, and right. you've read a lot of success at this point. Very, I mean, very early on, and I'll put the the link to your to your website out there. I encourage people to go. It's actually a really good website. A lot of them aren't awesome, but uh, <laughs> yours we try. Yeah, <laughs> yours is a, a good one, and it just goes project by project by project and grant by grant by grant and you and you don't you don't get that if they think that you can't get the work done right Absolutely. that you can't work with the folks that you need to to accomplish that and I, I have a list I, I can't read the whole thing I want you to tell me a little bit though about a recent one because I think it's part of a culmination of that idea of the success is a NOAA grant I think it was just awarded in April I believe right. yeah That's right. over 10 million dollars to do tell me about the the oyster restoration program yeah, it's something you know we're super excited about, and got to give credit where credit's due. And and we have focused so much on oysters because the Nature Conservancy originally invested in oyster restoration in Pensacola Bay, and that that conversation started back after the oil spill. It continued on for the last decade and ended up developing a comprehensive oyster fishery and habitat management plan for for Pensacola Bay. And, you know, we all can wring our hands about the need for more planning documents 
and when are we going to do restoration? But these activities have a tremendous value in actually being able to get not only financial resources to the table, personnel resources, but then policy changes where they're necessary as well. And so that planning effort was spearheaded by the Nature Conservancy. We ended up becoming a partner with them as the SRA program uh, got its legs under it and worked with a, a team of partners from across the region, whether it's aquaculture, academia, to the local governments, and the development community as well to set specific strategies on recovering the once prolific oyster fishery we had in Pensacola Bay. You mentioned a partner too there. You actually had like five or six. Uh, I was reading the list. You obviously, you know, NOAA first and foremost, but you had Fish and Wildlife, DEP, the Conservancy, obviously. I think there's right. at least a, a few more in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, there were, there were 20, 25 wow. active stakeholders that came to these bi-monthly meetings to, to set out course on what the vision is for oyster restoration. That ended up, you know, fast forward a year and some change later, that ended up where we had a plan that okay, now what are we going to do with it? Well, the estuary program took that on and has since adopted it into our management plan and is now running forward with our partners. Too many to name, but of course the, the state agencies and, and uh, TNC carrying, helping carry that forward into large-scale oyster restoration for the Bay. And what we did when we rolled out our management plan back in October of 2022 was to set a very audacious goal of of restoring 1,500 acres of of oyster habitat in the Pensacola Bay system. That's a lot of oysters. Apparently, a football field is an acre. I don't know if that's true. That's what I heard. But that's that's like that's (laughs) 1,500 football fields worth of oysters. Yeah, that's a lot. As we've kind of worked with with our partners to figure out how we do that, we've work to fill a lot of data gaps, bottom type mapping, water filtration models, and a lot of modeling that I don't necessarily understand, but the rest of our team does. That's the important part. But what we've been able to do now is to take advantage of some of these infrastructure bill funds that have flowed through NOAA and most recently to their transformational habitat and, and resilience grant opportunity that, yes, back in April 23, we were successful in securing nearly $11 million through NOAA to do the full estuary scale design and permitting work that's necessary to achieve that 1,500-acre target and then also implement um, the first 100 acres of of oyster uh, restoration as well. It's going to be a transformational opportunity not only for the ecosystem services that are provided, but to eventually see that reestablishment of the of the oyster fishery to the region. The goal as we move forward is to try to engage the local workforce as much as we can in the restoration. You know, that that's one of the unfortunate things I think about large scale restoration is many times large large contractors from somewhere outside of a community has to come in and, and, and you know build these breakwaters or you know do dredging or whatever is required for a project and that's still necessary and that's still going to be part of this project but what we want to be able to do is to take a a, give a nod to the you know historic fishing industry that that's been in Pensacola and be able to build up that next generation as well what's the what's the timeline on on that one it's obviously you can't plant uh 1500 it's already uh, done 
Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I was like, uh, uh, let's go out wow. right now. You yeah. really aren't government at this yeah. point. Um, I kid, I kid. What is the, the broad uh, timeline? When do you think that you're going to have 1,500 football fields uh, in the water? Right. So th- this grant through NOAA is, is a f- on a four-year planning horizon. And so over the next two years, we're working to knock out the design and permitting work associated with it. And the goal being to get that phase one, 100 acres roundabout yeah. um, in place in, in a four-year period. The longer-term goal of 1,500 acres, we've set a 10-year target. So we're talking 2032, 2033, mm-hmm. when we expect to be able to tout 1,500 football fields of oysters out in Pensacola Bay. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So what else is what else is going on? What does the future look like? We know what the present at this point. What have you got tucked under your sleeve that's coming up? I mean, that's not enough. <laughs> it is. It, it's a lot. And it's not the only thing, right? I mean, you know, yeah, no, I, 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 I kid about that. But there's there's a ton already in the works and there's a lot more to come. So um, another large scale restoration effort will we'll kick off here later part of the year is design work uh, associated with restoration of Carpenter's Creek and Carpenter's Creek, for those who don't know, flows into Bayou Tahar and then ultimately into Pensacola Bay. It's a sole tributary to, to Bayou Tahar number one, but it has a lot of historical importance to the, the Pensacola region, uh, not only for Native Americans, but also for African Americans during the time of segregation. And so this is going to be a partnership with Escambia County and the city of Pensacola that we're really excited to, to work towards uh, over the next year. And then additionally, we're working to, to partner with local governments and utilities on large-scale septic sewer conversion and, and stormwater improvements. You know, there's, there's no shortage of, of water quality yeah. challenges across the state, and unfortunately, northwest Florida falls in that lane as well. Sure. And so, you know, working in partnership with some of our academic partners, with private sector, with utilities to say, hey, where, where can we expect the greatest bang for the buck, but also the greatest improvement in terms of water quality? And we hope, um, and this is working in partnership with Senator Broxson's office and, and our partners to the east over in Choctahatchee Bay and St. Andrews and St. Joe Bay as well, is that we can see a transformational change in the next decade with water quality as well so that way we do maintain that fishery that we're trying to bring back yeah Uh, that we do maintain the ecotourism aspect that has supported and will continue to support uh, this region so that's a big focus on the restoration side we're also putting a great emphasis on monitoring education outreach as well you know working in partnership with local state agencies and and academia to build out a monitoring network and then on the education outreach side being able to partner with school groups and actually get out into the community because that's an ongoing it's an ongoing campaign is you've always got new people moving in you've always got kids that are coming up through school and we want to be able to plug in early and often uh, to really develop these bay ambassadors in every resident of the region i want to take just a moment to talk about my friends at res Florida is a treasure trove of natural wonders, but the cost of that treasure is our collective responsibility to restore and protect its ecological and water resources. That's where my friends at Res, the nation's leader in ecological and hydrological restoration, are at their best. With an extensive Florida-based team, Res provides top-notch, nature-based solutions that uplift Florida's ecosystems and the communities that rely on them. From water quality to hydrological restoration, wetland mitigation to coastal resilience, 
Res addresses the complex challenges facing our state with our unique operating model of taking full responsibility for their project's performance over time. Working with both the public and private sectors, Res is tackling the issues affecting Florida's water and land resources the most. Their long-term, cost-effective, and sustainable projects rehabilitate impaired ecosystems, helping them do the work nature intended. Cleansing water, sheltering wildlife, buffering storms, and sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Join Res on their mission to restore and uplift Florida's ecosystems. Visit www.res.us to learn more about Res and their commitment to creating a resilient future for Florida. All right, let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, maybe that's a good, that's the good point to transition into the questions I ask pretty much every single person that's a guest. You hit, uh, you hit, I think my last or second to last question. And so I'll just, I'll move it right on up to the top. What do you tell young people? You were, you were a product of a pretty innovative program to get kids out and involved in environmental sciences and, and these places on the ground in the water. What would you tell young people? That are, that are thinking about that now or entering, trying to decide whether or not they want to get into management or environmental science but when they're going to college. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, say don't, don't give up, you know, give it a shot. And especially if you find yourself you know, senior level in high school or maybe freshman in college and you're still trying to find your way, there are plenty of internship opportunities out there. Go apply, see if you like that field. And then if you do and you ultimately go and you know, pursue an undergrad in, in that field, my emphasis has been go to work after that. Go work for Park Service or DEP or FWC or a private firm. Go into consulting and get a feel for it before you start looking at graduate school. That's how I ended up. And I can't imagine doing it a different way. That was so beneficial to me. And a lot of it has to do with timing and luck, sure, but you really build out your relationships and your network at that point. And that is as critical as the as the technical knowledge that you'll gain through a academic setting. Yeah, I mean, that's what I wanna, I'll throw a little bit of that at you in, in that regard, because I'm looking, I have this piece of paper in front of me and it has what seems like an endless number of organizations <laughs> that you've got involved in or co-chaired. The chairman of the Gulf Consortium Policies and Procedures Review Committee, member of Gulf Front Watershed Management Planning Steering Committee, Panhandle Estuarine Restoration Team Steering Committee. But all each of those have given you those opportunities uh, in terms of being able to network with other people that, are, that want to do the same thing or are doing the same thing that you want to do for a living, right? That's absolutely right. There's a lot of dedicated people out there that, that wants to see this type of work advanced and none of us can do it alone. And so you gotta find you gotta find those friends, you gotta build those bridges and, and make those connections. And then ultimately, before too long, you've got a, a program that's pulling in twelve million dollars and you got a staff of six people and you don't know how that happened. But mm. it's because <laughs> there's a network of people that want to see these things succeed and that's what makes it it makes it happen yeah i, I know how it happened <laughs> you've done you've done well you've got a bunch of years still ahead of you you're going to do tremendous things i i am certain but for right now what professional accomplishment at this point only to this point are you maybe the most proud of it, it, you know it's hard to pick one maybe two it starts with the, the team we've been able to build, you know, here at the SRA program. I'm incredibly proud of the people that we have and the people that I'm sure we'll have in the future. But it is that, you know, 
team dynamic that makes it so that makes us so successful and it makes these types of projects move forward in terms of tangible accomplishment i'm incredibly grateful and excited to be able to get this large-scale oyster restoration underway for a program that's by the book five years old to be able to pull in 12 11 million dollars 12 million dollars almost that's pretty impressive yeah and and, you know from a a larger perspective looking at the 40,000 foot view what i'm most grateful for is despite many challenges of getting the the SRA program stood up was that by and large we've succeeded and we continue to see this grow and you know that that is my plan is to continue to see it grow I, I I don't do well saying oh this is good enough hmm. and you know move on from there it's okay what's the next thing what's what's the next thing in five years and what's the next thing in five years after that and you know we're very very much a growing region we've got more people moving to this area every day we've got more people moving to this state every day that's in the face of many water quality issues climate change impacts etc but i very much believe specific to our area and i'll say this you know throughout the state as a whole we have great opportunity to succeed where that we can be environmental stewards and we can also see our economy grow. And I think that's the unique position of the SRA program is, is we can kind of be that, that middle ground. You know, we're not birds and bunnies, but we're also not the regulatory mm-hmm. side of things either. We're, hey, this is what's good for quality of life. This is what's good for the region. Well, let's figure out a way to make that happen. And I think we, we've been able to demonstrate that and uh, I think we'll be able to continue doing that as well. Are you optimistic about the environment, the future of the environment in Florida? Yeah, you know, it's it's a challenging world, no doubt. But I'll say within the last couple of years, I've grown more optimistic in terms of the future of Florida's environment. And I'll put an asterisk next to that. But right now, the state legislature, the governor is investing more in environmental resource management than has ever been done before. And we support our friends down in the Everglades. We'll see more of that come up here in (laughs) Northwest Florida. But, you know, I I think it's also very important to keep in mind what is realistic. We are dealing with the implications of climate change. We've got sea level rise impacting corners of the state. In our case, we've got substantial um, issues with inland flooding because of the amount of, of rainfall that we get. You know, we have to continue to look 20, 30, 40 years out to say, well, what what are these regions going to look like and start planning for that now? Mm-hmm. And that's that's the area where I'd say, you know, we need to be able to, to, to pick up the slack. And you know, we got one, one community, one Florida, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you want to say, we want to continue to see that flourish uh, into in the next generation. Mm-hmm. We've got to take the resources, the necessary resources that are currently being invested for restoration and couple that with the appropriate planning for, for the future as well. Yeah, you're probably going to hear from some uh, copyright attorneys from DEP about that one Florida. Um, <laughs> uh, is there a thing that like that keeps you up at night? I'll say that I sleep well almost every night mm-hmm. and I'm grateful for that. But philosophically and long term, I'm concerned about the, the implications of, of sea level rise and, and climate change to the state of Florida and to the country as a whole. That's not just water, that's heat as well. You know, that's going to be a continuing issue for, for our region. And we're doing great work across the state. We, the collective we, mm-hmm. doing great work across the state for restoration purposes. I think the the challenge remains how quickly we can get that work underway. All of these things from 
the time of appropriating funds to getting a grant agreement in place, doing design, doing permitting, doing restoration, doing monitoring to see if it's successful before you do the other project takes a long time. Mm. And that is the, my biggest concern is coming up against the clock in terms of, well, when do we reach a tipping point where it makes it infeasible to restore water quality, to bring nutrients in line, for example? W- when do you have so much to bite off from a, a red tide bloom that the you don't have the billion dollars that you can allocate to that one issue. It's kind of those compounding effects that really we've got to put some greater emphasis in terms of how we can do these things bigger, better, faster. So for maybe there's a an agency somewhere out there that isn't currently partnering with you, but if folks want to know more about what you and and your your mighty punching above their weight uh, team of six are doing and how they can get involved uh, and help how do they reach you yeah you can go to uh, our estuary program website which is ppbep.org we love acronyms around here <laughs> it's got a great listing of of our comprehensive management plan uh, which is a fantastic resource that's our blueprint for the next uh, five ten years six goals 25 objectives 51 actions mm. you know that we're working in partnership with other jurisdictions on and that ranges from everything from habitat restoration, water quality, community resilience, and education outreach. But the other uh, website I hope people would check out is stateofthebays.org. And this is a, a new site that we just launched within the last couple of weeks. And it's focused on our first ever State of the Bay report card. And this is really intended to serve as a community resource to get an understanding, a comprehensive understanding about how are we doing from an ecological sense whether that's bacteria impairments or nutrient concentrations or seagrass extent, oyster extent. And we, what we have done in this system is use basically a healthcare theme that we use throughout our program. Hmm. You know, we, we, we kind of relate human health to, to environmental health. And so it's a very digestible, easy to understand resource that the community can get an understanding of. And we'll be updating this every two years. So as we see more of these restoration projects get underway, the goal is to be able to look back from the 2022 effort to say, okay, hopefully we've hit that benchmark and we're that much closer to to meeting our our target for for restoration. It's It's a great resource for the community. Awesome. Awesome. Matt Posner, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much, Brett. This has been great. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to Water for Fighting. This podcast has been brought to you by Res and Sea and Shoreline. Don't forget to check the episode notes to visit their websites and learn more about how they can help you. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use. And don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review. You can follow the show on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, probably even Twitter at FLWaterPod. And you can reach me directly at FLWaterPod at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. Production of this podcast is by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sworn for making the best of what he had to work with and to Dave Barfield for the amazing graphics and technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free and you should check out the band live or wherever great music is sold. Join me next time for another amazing conversation with someone who has helped shape water and environmental policy in the Sunshine State. Until then... Keep your whiskey close and your water closer.